That was, uh, there we go. That was not what is typically hailed or discussed or preached or, or talked about concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. If anything, what John has done is given us a full-orbed picture of Jesus. There's, there's lots of things that we've seen in John that we know and we love and we accept readily and easily. And there's things that we've struggled with that have been confusing or just, just baffling even at times. And there may even be some things that we've come across that has repulsed us. But the process, though, this process of letting the Bible say what it says is important. Because if we don't do this, then we will always drift towards error. I don't know if we've noticed that in our own lives. When, when we sit, we drift. We were reading the other day uh, at, in our house uh, we were, the story of Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China in the middle of the 1800s. And they're in the Indian Ocean on this five-and-a-half-month boat ride from England all the way to China, and they got uh, becalmed is what it's called. The boats becalmed, no wind, no nothing. And what they realized was is that now we're caught in a current and we can do nothing but just drift and towards the reef. So that when there's no activity, when there's no wind, they just drift and that's always dam and damaging because when you hit that reef, the boat's going to crack and then you're going to go under and there's nothing that you can do. When there's a lack of activity, a lack of pursuit, then what we end up with is drifting into error. We always have to paddle into orthodoxy to intentionally row in that direction. And when you think about it, that's true throughout biblical history. How did Israel in the book of Judges always end up in this cycle of idolatry? The book summed up in Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king. The purpose of, of saying that is to look, make you look back to Deuteronomy 17 when there was supposed to be a king. And his job was first to write out a handwritten copy of the law of God, the Bible, in the presence of a priest so that he doesn't change it or make it any easier for himself. But he's supposed to do that so that he can keep the people on the straight and the narrow. But when that doesn't happen, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Isn't that the day we live in? I mean, we, we live in a day where it's not preposterous to say at all, well, that's your truth and this is my truth. That's everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. And that leads to, a, to a, an environment, a circumstance, a society, a culture that drifts into error. It's always how idolatry and false religions work, that you abandon the standard and then you begin to innovate and think this is how it should be. That's how idolatry always works. Romans 1, 21 and following tells us that. For although they knew God, meaning every person on the planet, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. We're going to think of our own things. We're going to innovate and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You could say that at just about every single college professor at a major university. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what we do when we innovate is we say, ah, I know that the Bible says something about God being made in our image, but we're going to make 
or, or, or we being made in God's image, what we want to do is make God into our image. We want to create and craft a God that is what we would like, that therefore he's like me. And if we're not careful, we can do that with Jesus. We can create a Jesus. We can create a, a ministry of Jesus, a life of Jesus that the Bible knows nothing of. But it sounds really, really good to us. And the opposite of is actually true of what's supposed to be happening in Romans 8, 29, that we're supposed to be conformed into Jesus' image, not conforming Jesus into our image. Now, our text this morning is along these lines. Our text this morning, I promise you, you're not going to see John 12, 36 through 43. You're not going to see any of those verses on anything in Hobby Lobby. It's not going to be on any of that stuff. And there's not going to be a song written about these verses playing in the background at Chick-fil-A. You're not going to hear it. These are not these kinds of verses. This is not anyone, This is not anything true about Jesus or God or the ministry of Christ that an unbeliever would just invent or that an immature, a new Christian would just say, yeah, that sounds right. I like that. But nevertheless, that's what the text is. So how do we come to texts like this? It's easy to get up and preach a text like this and just hammer everybody to death. I don't want to do that. I never want to do that. But we do need to walk through these kinds of texts and really understand why that they're here. So we've got to remind ourselves first, how do we walk through these things, that we let God define himself. And when, when he defines something different than the way I would define God, then, then it's my duty to defer. It's my duty to say, okay, I was wrong about that. I've seen something to the contrary in the scriptures, and I need to just submit to that. And the other thing that we do is we never apologize for what's written in the Bible. You, you hear that a lot of times when you go, man, if, I know this is, this is hard to deal with. I, I wouldn't have put it in here, but here it is, so we gotta, we got to go through that. That, that sounds at, on the front end like, wow, well, you know, he's just, a, he's just acknowledging that this is hard. This is a hard text. But what you're really saying is that, you know, I'm wiser than God, and I wouldn't have included this. My wisdom supersedes that of God, and, and, and I wouldn't be like this were I him. We don't want to do that either. That's treading on very dangerous ground. But also what we don't want to do is we don't want to forget Psalm 27 that we just read about the mercies of God, about his loving kindness, that Psalm 136 says over and over and over again that his love endures forever, that his mercy reaches to the heavens. So we don't forget that either when we come to a text like this because we don't want to get unbalanced the other way, that we define for ourselves a tough, stringent, hardcore God as opposed to a wimpy, soft, mushy God. No, we, all of Scripture defines God for us. So when we come to a tough passage like this, we don't lean so far into it that we forget God's loving kindness and his mercy. But we don't remember his loving kindness and mercy so much that we, we uh, cancel out what these verses really do have to say. So now that everybody is sufficiently bummed out, let's get into our text this morning. We're prepared for it. Now, where we are in time is we're on Tuesday, most likely Tuesday, of Christ's Passion Week. That's where we are. So what happens on Friday? Christ is crucified. So we're on Tuesday, and this is happening. And Jesus, we read a little bit at the end of last week, his last big public message. 
And then we read at verse 36 that says, at the end, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And if you have in your Bible, most Bibles will have the end of that verse broken off from the previous paragraph and stuck in this paragraph. And that's on purpose. First off, there's no verse numbers in the original Greek text. So those are relative, they're not arbitrary, but they're not infallible. So you could separate these two ideas of what the preceding what happened in verse 36, which was Jesus calling people to believe. You separate that from the second half of the verse when it says, when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. We see here the departure of Christ. He's hiding himself. That these words are intentional. So, so let's not skim these words. Let's, let's meditate on them. He just said last week, the previous paragraph, he's talking about the light. He said, walk in the light while it's here. Otherwise, darkness is coming. Embrace the light. And that's the, the uh, type of, of urgency that he's spoken with so many times. Drink the living water now. Walk in the light now. Re find God while he can be found. Find him now. And then now, after he says those things, he departs and he hides from them. The light is fleeting. Darkness is imminent. Now he leaves them as if to say, don't miss my point. He's, not, he's no longer seen in public. The rest of the book, until the crucifixion, he's going to be completely in private for chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 completely in private with just the disciples. So Jesus is saying, come to me now while I may be found. And he's using this imagery. There's no more public words. And, and he's not hiding to preserve his life. He's not hiding to keep the timetable right. Ah, I'm not supposed to die till Friday. And if I stay out front, then, then they'll kill me. We've seen over and over and over again how the Pharisees or the other leaders have tried to put Jesus to death and they just can't. That They, they want to, but they can't do it. It's happened several times. That's not the reason why he's hiding. God can stop them from doing that. This hiding has another reason. It's supposed to be symbolic and instructive. And the next verse and the handful of verses is going to make it clear. So let me read Psalm, or, or John 12, 37 through 41. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So now the narrative has stopped. You know what I mean when I say that? The story has been paused. We're not talking about what Jesus is doing or the disciples are doing, what the characters in the narrative are doing. Now John is commentating on what is happening. John is writing now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what is happening. Jesus is not going to speak this entire paragraph. It's only going to be John writing about Christ under the prompting of the Holy Spirit in order to instruct us clearly on how to interpret what's going on. And the chosen topic of the Holy Spirit through the pen of John is the topic of unbelief. It says they, in verse 
37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That they is the majority of the Jews, the Pharisees, the elites, the crowds, all of these people in this nation that Jesus hasn't stepped one foot outside of. That you could fit, I forget, it's 13 or 15 Israels inside Texas. Jesus didn't step outside of that boundary. They did not believe. It didn't matter that they had seen all these miracles, these undeniable miracles. It didn't matter that they heard Jesus' voice. It didn't matter that they witnessed God break into the natural order at least three times with his voice and several times by his actions. They still did not believe. So here, we have biblical proof that seeing Jesus physically and witnessing him perform miraculous wonders did nothing to persuade the majority of first century Jews to confess him as the Messiah by faith. Seeing him in person and witnessing his miracles did nothing to persuade them to believe. So he's three to four days away from from dying on the cross. This is the end of his ministry. Who has actually believed him? You got 11 disciples because Judas is, hasn't turned yet, but he's going to, so he's, when we know what's coming and John keeps telling us. So you have 11 disciples, a handful of women. You have Lazarus and his sisters, Jesus' mom. And basically that's the people that he started with. That, that, that's what's happened. That, that, that's who's there at the end of three years of nothing but constant public ministry. And despite all of the miracles he's done in public, that's who's believed. John only records seven miracles, but he says in John 21, 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John records seven miracles in his book, but he says, hey, if, he, if I wrote down everything that Jesus did, all of the miracles, then we would have more books than the earth could contain. So we have to see something like Jesus is constantly doing miracles. That is, the disciples are seeing at least. And John records seven, and what happens? Though he had done so many signs, miracles, before them, they still did not believe in him. What observation should we take from this? First, witnessing or experiencing miracles has no bearing on the souls of sinners. In and of itself, witnessing a miracle has no bearing on the soul of a sinner. Nevertheless, Jesus still did them. And he did them in droves, according to John. So therefore, they must have had some other purpose. Because he did them and Jesus didn't waste any action he didn't waste any effort. He wasn't just goofing around and showing off. They had to have some other purpose. What was the purpose of these miracles? Verse 38 has the answer. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The purpose of all these miracles as recorded by John is the fulfillment of the prophecy about the Messiah. Jesus did all of these miracles for three years knowing full well it would not lead to mass conversions of any kind. He did these miracles in order to fulfill the prophecy about the Messiah that despite 
being witnessed by all of Israel, they would remain despisers of Jesus. Even though they're displays of his divinity, the arm of the Lord, it says. It says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? That's the message of the preaching of Jesus. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the power, the miracles of Jesus. And that comes from Isaiah 53, verse 1. And you know what Isaiah 53 is all about? Jesus, the whole chapter. It's the forbidden chapter in Jewish circles because it so clearly talks about the New Testament Jesus. And the beginning of it starts with this. Who has believed us? I preached and nobody believed. I showed the arm of God, the power of God, and nobody believed. It fulfills the prophecy. He did these miracles, these undeniable miracles that were still denied to be evidence for condemnation. It manifests Romans 3, 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. They called Jesus a liar. They called him a fraud. They called him a charlatan. And on judgment day, those miracles that they witnessed, they're going to be called to the witness stand as inescapable evidence of their denial. See, the prophecy of the suffering servant is all over the book of Isaiah. That's why John appeals to him. There's these servant songs and these suffering servant moments that he came, he spoke, he displayed power, and nobody believed. And John says that that was fulfilled here during Passover week. So as readers, we need to understand that that this unbelief is all part of God's plan. His, His sovereignty includes man's sin. He doesn't or he doesn't author sin in any way, but he is sovereign over it. And if he wasn't, if that wasn't the case, that God's not sovereign over sin, then how can Romans 8.28 be true? It would have to be a lie. That God causes all things to work together for good. All things has got to include sin, has got to include evil, so he's got to be sovereign over it. So now we realize where we are right now. We have walked into the deep end of the pool. So if you feel a little worried, just grab the wall. It'll be okay. But we're here in the deep end. We're going to stay here for just a minute. So consider this. Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost to all these gathered people at the feast of Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Jesus did all of these miracles, Peter says first. And as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the miracles were evidence. Everybody saw them. Nobody can deny that they were real. You can just reject the meaning of them. But God delivered that same Jesus up sovereignly. But yet those men who did it are still guilty. So it was always going to happen. And they were responsible for their actions. Did God want them to violate those commandments? The sixth commandment, the ninth commandment? Well, no. But in other sense, they had to because Jesus was always going to die for our sins. So his sovereignty arches over this in a way that just bends our minds. There was never a chance that Jesus wasn't going to be crucified. And there was never a chance that these people weren't going to be held This was all part of the plan. The sovereignty of God arches over all of it. What John is saying is that their unbelief, despite so many undeniable miracles, 
It was all part of God's plan and fulfills God's word. Therefore, verse 39, they could not believe. Therefore, they could not believe. Well, let's, let's slow down here and acknowledge this is heavy. This is difficult. This is not on any mugs being sold on Christian websites. This is not on greeting cards. It says, therefore, they could not believe. Not would not believe. It says could not. Maybe some of us are hearing this for the first time. And it doesn't fit the received or the common perspective of, of God. What, what should we do when we come to a verse like this? What should we do? The first thing that we should do is keep reading. Is, is keep reading to understand this all in context. Because you can make the Bible say anything when you pull it out of context. So let's understand what this is in context. And we keep knowing and remembering all that the Bible says about God. That he is good and that he's never turned away anyone who has come to him. So look at verse 40. For again, Isaiah said, now this is quoting a different portion of Isaiah. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Why did they not believe? They could not believe. Why? Verse 40 says, He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Now that's nothing new. Let's look at Deuteronomy 29, 2-4, just to see this historically being true. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders, miracles. Israelites, you saw miracles in Egypt, undeniable, massive, national-scale miracles. Then verse 4, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. How can this be? I mean, we, we, we respond to this, going, but how can that be? 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that Satan has blinded. The unthrough 2 shows us that Satan is the one who's... Uh, how his power works. It's under God's submission, but he can still inflict real pain on people. Did God go in Deuteronomy 29 or here, John 12, or in Isaiah 6, did God go into people's hearts? Is that what we're dealing with now? That God went into their hearts and whipped up some fresh evil and put it in there. Is that what he did? Because if that's what he did, then this is not a God worth serving. This is not a God worth submitting to. This is not a God worth bowing down to in any way, if that's what he did. So he did not do that. We'll prove that in a minute, but let's just cut the tension right now. He did not do that. He let them go the way, the way they wanted to go in their sin. Did Pharaoh, in the context of Deuteronomy 29, did Pharaoh go, you know what, I really feel like letting them go. But I don't know, I got this weird impulse that I should make him stay. So I guess I'm gonna. No, he wanted to keep them. He wanted to reject God. He saw the gnats and the frogs and the river turn to blood. He saw the boils. He saw the hail. And he's like, I don't care. And there's 10 times 
that it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, but there's also 10 times that says God hardened his heart. So what's happening there? Is it God doing it or is it Pharaoh doing it? The assumption that we have to always maintain, maybe the most important doctrine in the history of understanding the church and all of humanity is the doctrine of total depravity, that we are bent towards evil. And so God doesn't have to come into Pharaoh and whip up some fresh evil and stick it in there to make him do evil things. He just has to remove his hand of restraining grace. When I was a kid, we had a dog. His name was Hank, after Hank the cow dog. And he was a cow dog. We bought him from a, a, a true breeder of cow dogs. He was a border collie. I mean, this, this dog was bred to herd. And he would run after everything. The, the poor guys who rode their bikes between their house and the restaurant row that would work there and the restaurants in College Station, our dog would light out after them and chase them. He never wanted to bite them. He just wanted to stop them. Stop riding your bike. And they would get off their bikes and hold it in front of them and move around like this until me, the 12-year-old, could run over and go, sorry, lo siento, and grab the dog. And then, or he would chase after the joggers in the neighborhood or and any animal that moved. The sprinklers would go off and he would go and bite all the heads of the sprinklers. <laughs> and the sprinkler that would turn like this, he would turn a tight circle around it like this constantly and then bite it and stop it and let it go and chase it again. He would do it over and over all of these times. And, and when I would take him on a leash, he would bite the leash and pull me. And, and then if he saw anything, he was full sail against the leash. If it was a bug, if it was a lizard, a car, a person, a shadow, he was going to go get it. Constantly, I hated walking that dog. And eventually, one time when we were all at camp, we came home and the dog was gone. He went home to be with the Lord. And because my parents couldn't take it anymore. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a sore spot in some family discussions. Nevertheless, if he's on that leash and tugging because he sees a bicyclist or a kid on a skateboard or somebody jogging or, or an animal or a moving ball of any kind, he would never bring the ball back. He would just stop it and then wait for you to throw it again. If he, if he saw that on the leash, what would I have to do to get him to go? Just unhook the leash. That's what he wanted. There were several times where he was on the leash and he ran all the way against it and did the full flip over against it because he was running so hard. And I saved his life several times from getting hit by cars or trucks or, or just massive vehicles that, we, that were driving around in our neighborhood. And what would I have to do to get him to go kill himself in a car wreck? Just let the leash off. He did not want anything to do with my rules. He had no belief or trust in me that I was keeping him safe. I didn't have to make him rebellious. That's what he was. What was keeping him away from that was my leash. So the same is true for God with Pharaoh. The same is true for God over all of us. That the, the reason we don't fall headlong into wickedness is the grace of God in restraining evil. He does that individually over people, but he does it over the world. Let me show you 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 8. We're going to be way out of context, but I'm going here to show you this one thing. We're not diving into this. This is all eschatology stuff, and we don't have time. But it's doing anyway, says the Apostle Paul, for that day will come 
will not come, rather, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, still with you, I told you these things? And you know, here it is, you know what is restraining him, that man of lawlessness. You know what's restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. The man of lawlessness is what? Why is he here? Why aren't we dealing with this right now? Because he's being restrained by someone who is a he. And the church throughout history has acknowledged that to be the Holy Spirit, restraining evil. What, so often what we think is when we read these verses like John 12, 40, that he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that God did that because he's a bully. No, you want blinded eyes and you want hardened hearts. All he did was take his hand of restraint off and let you go the way you wanted to go. He just unhooked the leash and you went the way that you wanted to go. So often our, our complaint is, how could God let, not let everyone into heaven instead of the reverse? The biblical complaint would be, how could God let one into heaven? And saying like, God, how could you let Hitler or Stalin exist ever? But the real question that we should actually be pondering is, how is every president and every dictator not Hitler and not Stalin? How is that not happening all the time? Because of God's restraining grace, without his grace and turning us back, we plow forward into evil and rejection of him. That's what verse 40 is all about. He didn't have to blind their eyes and harden their hearts as if they were somehow morally neutral. They weren't. They rejected and he let them go. Isaiah that, that passage comes from Isaiah 6, that great moment where he sees the throne room of God, which is really the throne room of Christ, we'll see in verse 41. And then after seeing that moment and being broken over his own sin and then getting touched with a coal to his lips, having been cleansed from his sin, God speaks in and amongst the Trinity and says, who's going to go out there for us with this message? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then he gets sent out. And then God tells him, you're going to go and nobody's going to listen. You're going to speak and nobody's going to want to hear it. And then eventually Isaiah goes, how long do I have to do that? That seems pretty miserable. And he says, you're going to have to do that until there's nothing left but a holy seed in the stump. Christ is that holy seed and the stump is Israel. You're going to do that forever until the one comes. In verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Christ's glory, and spoke of him. This was all about Christ. That's his context for writing this whole prophecy, that there is one who is going to come, who is the seed. And what did Jesus say? That unless a seed falls into the ground and dies... It can't multiply. No life can come from it. He's about to be the seed who falls into the ground and dies right within the context of the stump of Israel. Everything's been cut down. Everything's been destroyed except for one stump. That root of Jesse, that spring of Jesse is going to come forward. That time, John says, has come now. The holy seed is ready to die and fall into the ground that many might have life. 
you see that great prophecy, and then you get tagged on at the end, verse 42 and 43, the peculiar passage. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Wait a minute. I thought it said that they could not believe and that they still did not believe after seeing all the signs. Well, what was it? Could they believe or could they not believe? Now, remember in John, there's been plenty of moments where people have said that they believed, and then the discourse goes on to show that they really didn't, right? John 8 is a good example, 30 and 31. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And then not yet 15 verses later in John 8, 44, he, Jesus says to those people, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So they said that they believed. Jesus addressed them as the ones who believed. And then just a handful of verses later, it's proved they didn't believe. Now let's look at this verse where it says, Verse 42, nevertheless, many of them, of the, even of the authorities, believed in him, but. Anytime the Bible follows up your belief with a but, it's not good. That usually is not going to bode very well for that. Jesus's, or John's stated desire in this book is to convince and persuade people to believe in Christ as the Son of God, the only hope of salvation for sinners. But he also deals with false belief a lot in John, like he does in 1 John. So this says, verse 42 and following, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So we see here, nevertheless, there was, there was no shortage of false faith, even among the authorities. There's three symptoms, the fear of man, the failure to confess, and the love of of earthly glory. The first one, the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. You will either fear God or you will fear man. It will not be neither, but it cannot be both. Matthew 10, 26-28, Jesus says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden, that will not be shown. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says, don't fear them. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear God. Don't be afraid of what man might do to you, but have a sober analysis and fear of what God will do to all of the unrepentant. Who deserves your reverence, your respect, your deference, your fear? A human? Or God. This is what the psalmist says of the one who fears God. Psalm 128, 1 through 4. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. Blessed is everyone from God. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. You shall, the fears of God, shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, and you shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. If you fear God, you have nothing to fear concerning man. Nothing. But yet these people said they feared the Pharisees 
and not God. Secondly, what did they do? They didn't confess. The fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess their belief. Romans 10, 9, we love this verse, and we should, and we should use it evangelistically all the time. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Did you see the if at the beginning? If you confess. What do these people not do? Confess. You can't confess in secret. That's not a confession. You can't be on trial for something and go, well, I confessed it in my closet. That doesn't matter. You have to confess it here in court. We have to hear it. Jesus insists on this. Sticking with Matthew 10, like we just read earlier, that a few verses after those passages we just read, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. You acknowledge me before men, Jesus himself is going to stand up at the judgment seat and say, Father, he, she is with me. I have covered them. I have paid for them. My blood has formed a robe around them, and that's all that matters about them. He's going to speak and advocate for you. But verse 33 says, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, obviously, Jesus is not talking about that one singular sin of denial. Otherwise, Peter would have no hope, and we would have books of the Bible written by a pagan. This is not talking about that. This is talking about a life of denial that I will not confess. I will not say it out loud. I will not publicly identify in any meaningful way with Jesus. Jesus says that that person, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then lastly, the worst one, possibly, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Jesus said earlier in John 5, how can you believe, talking to these guys, same people. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? It's impossible to believe if you're seeking glory from men instead of loving the glory that comes from God. You can't have them both. They're mutually exclusive. In fact, didn't Jesus just finish preaching this in John 12? Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's, he, he says that. You, you can't have them both. I want the glory from man and the glory from God. Jesus says you've got to lose that glory in order to gain the eternal glory. Paul goes along. We won't read him for the sake of time, but Galatians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul says, I don't seek to please man. If I were still trying to please Christ, could I possibly be pleasing man? And then Calvin Along these lines, he's quoted as saying this in his commentary. He says, Can anything be more foolish, or rather, can anything be more beastly than to prefer the silly applauses of men to the judgment of God? Or silly or beastly than preferring what man can clap and pat you on the back for than what's going to happen when you stand before God. And what did it say? It said that they did not want to be put out of the synagogue. Was this same situation put towards someone else in John's gospel? John 9, when the parents of the man who was healed from blindness, they said, when the Pharisees approached them, we, yeah, he's our son, and he definitely used to be blind. We don't know how, so go ask him. He's old enough. Why? They did not want to be put out of the synagogue. 
It says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. They feared man and not God. For the Jews had actually or already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So they did not profess. They did not love the glory of God versus the glory of men. And they feared man and not God. And they kowtowed and they saved their social status. Their son, however, didn't. And he lost all that the world had to offer. Remember that? They put him out. John 9, 34, they cast him out. But what happens to the ones that the world casts out? Verse 35 of John 9, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, Jesus goes to those who are cast out for his name. And he said to that man, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. His parents were unwilling to, to sacrifice the glory of this world for the fear of God. They feared men, and they kept what they had. But Jesus didn't come and talk to them. He came and talked to their son, who was willing to be cast out. This is all driving towards, here as we conclude, one foundational truth at the end here of John, chapter 12. Your heart will be tested by one who knows you better than you. First Samuel 16, don't we know that verse? God does not look at the outward appearance as man does, but God looks at the heart. When he's evaluating who's going to be the next king, Samuel looks at David's brothers and goes, man, he's strong, he's handsome, he seems capable, he's experienced, he's older. And God says, I reject all these guys. I'm looking after hearts. I can see what you can't see, Samuel. And he alone has authority over our eternal souls. It doesn't matter the religious credits that you have, the ministry that you've supported, the miracles that you've seen, or the meals that you've served. Externals don't help us. And John wrote for this purpose that this Holy Spirit inspiring John wants us to examine our hearts, not our actions. Now, actions should flow from a, from a pure heart, but can you have good actions or acceptable actions? and be totally corrupt in your own heart? Absolutely. It's called faking. It's called wearing a mask. We can all do that. We're being called to examine hearts in this passage, our own. This, is, this, this text, even though it's heavy, is not out of disdain, but it's out of love. The love of God. He's, he's saying, do not follow the paths of the Jews who saw all that they saw but didn't believe. Don't follow the paths of those religious leaders who said that they believed, but yet were ashamed of Christ and loved the glory of man. Don't follow them. He's saying, see who Christ is, believe, and then confess that. Come what may. That's what we're being called to here. Jesus is going to summarize his ministry, public ministry, in the next paragraph. This is the end of John's commentary on his public ministry. So we are to see and believe and confess, come what may. And I want to leave us with the words, these blessed words of our Savior. Because the reason they didn't confess these leaders here or the parents of the blind men there is because they were afraid of what could happen to them. And Jesus knew that. And he knows that we're weak. He knows that we fear those things. He knows we fear those consequences. 
He understands those things. So hear what he says in Matthew 5, 10 through 12 in the Beatitudes, and then we'll pray. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You get heaven for being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And you only get persecuted for the sake of righteousness because everybody knows where you stand. That's how persecution comes. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what you inherit, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He knows that it's going to be because of him. He knows I'm asking you to suffer because of me. Not even because of what you've done, but because of what I've done. But blessed are you. He even says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. How can we rejoice and be glad? How can the apostles at the end of Acts chapter 4 go out skipping from being persecuted? They're like they were rejoicing that they were counted willing or counted worthy to be suffering for the kingdom. We can rejoice and be glad because of this, because your reward is great in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy, and where the thief does not break in and steal. Whatever that reward is, it's eternal, and it lasts forever. And know this, the encouragement comes, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're not alone. You have a long line of faithful witnesses. And can I encourage you, as we close, to read those stories Go read how the prophets died. Go read how the apostles were treated and were put to death. And then read church history books. If you don't know any good ones, find some short little biographies on missionaries, pastors, lay people, Amy Carmichael, Hudson Taylor, John G. Payton. Read these people and know I'm right in line with the faithful. As Hebrews 12 says, that there's a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us in a sense, encouraging us to lay off the sin that encumbers and to pursue Christ's likeness and to walk in his path of suffering, knowing that whatever cost we pay here will be far outweighed by what the reward we receive in glory. Let's pray. Father, we, we see a heavy text like this, and our, our gut reaction is to run from it or to explain it away or to just skim it. Um, to try to soften it in some way. We thank you for letting it land this morning and, and for us to sit in this where we know that there are glorious passages to come. We know we're about to see Jesus wash the feet of the disciples and give us that model of humility and mercy and love for others. We know that, that uh, your spirit has inspired or did inspire John to write the next chapters as well where the word love becomes predominant and we see Christ's love poured out on the cross. We know we're coming to those moments and so let us see these heavy words in context and let us worship you as the sovereign God that we aren't praying to a God who can merely just try his best to bring about good for his people. Where you are sovereign over everything that you fulfill prophecies. You write them and then you fulfill them. May we be enraptured by that, engaged by that, riveted by that, that that's who you are. And to, to all of us, 
that you are near, though you should have remained far away. Who you are in love moved close, and you remain close even when we might get put out of the synagogue or men might rage against us or we might lose the glory that comes from mankind. That you were close. That promise at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 or may that just ring ever more joyfully in our minds and our hearts that you said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You're with us always, Lord, till our hearts give out. And if it's your will for us to be around to the end of the age, you are with us even to then. So may we rest in that, knowing come what may. May we have no anger or ire, uh, against losing the glory of man. May we come together every Lord's Day and encourage one another and stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. And may we come and rest in the worship of being reminded of these eternal truths, of our eternal place and where we will be and the reward that we will have that we did not earn, that Christ earned for us. Father, thank you for passages like this. We thank you for sober days, even in the midst of incredibly joyful and happy days. May we always have a, a well-rounded, a biblically rounded perspective on who you are as the triune God of the universe. Your grace and your justice, your wrath and your mercy, your power and your, your tenderness, your nearness and your holiness. And we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.